You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So we are in the book of Psalms, and I know Doug did say we'd be doing a number of Psalms each night. There was just a bit of lag in the, in the way that got communicated, that's why I'm blaming that one tonight. We will generally be doing that as we go through, but Psalm 2, as you're going to see, is just such a rich psalm, um, so we're going to do what we do. So let's just open your Bibles, turn to Psalm 2. I know we covered a lot of introductory stuff about the book of Psalms last week. I won't repeat many of that, but just simply to say, and sort of one of my own thoughts is that what we get out of the book of Psalms in some ways is very much associated with what we think the Psalms are. If I wanted to summarize the Psalms in a single sentence, I would say that the Psalms are poetic versions of what we find in the law and the prophets throughout the Bible. That's one way to think of it. So this, I just want us to have a broad vision of the Psalms, not just as devotional reading. And don't misunderstand me, they are amazing for devotional reading, and that's why they're a treasured favourite of many. But we must not limit it to that, you see. Psalms are full of deep doctrine, deep spiritual truths, often couched in this... Uh, elegance of poetic language and Psalm 2 hopefully will illustrate that for us tonight. Now the reason why I had trouble jumping over this is because this is a really chief, it's really the definitive messianic psalm in many sense. I know Doug mentioned it briefly as a a representative example. I think because it's so near the front bookend of the book of Psalms, uh, in many ways even connected with Psalm number one, it's just such an important psalm. So let's, let's just read the whole thing together and then We'll go through it piece by piece. So it says, Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment, Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he may not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Now one of the things you might notice immediately about Psalm 2 is that there is no superscription or subscription. This is usually the way they refer to the small address that you find at the top of most books of Psalms to the chief musician, the psalm of so-and-so. Um, you notice there is none here. And the, the rabbis used to teach in Jewish tradition, they explained this. They used to connect Psalm 2 and Psalm 1. Many would argue that Psalm 2 is actually just a continuation of Psalm 1. And that's why you don't have this sort of introductory uh, section to a new psalm. Uh, and the reason they did that is they would note that Psalm 1 begins with the word blessed. You looked at that la- last week. And then the end of Psalm 2 ends with a very similar sentence using that word blessed Uh, and one of the ways the the Jewish interpretation works is they like to make sort of thematic connections by word association and it would be that that term blessed there or happy some of your translations 
might say. So, so that's, that's what they did. However, we actually know who did write this psalm, even though it doesn't say in the author, because in the book of Acts, uh, in Acts chapter 13, it says this, verse 25, it says, Who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? And it goes on to quote from Psalm 2. So we actually have the author given to us in the New Testament. And if, if the Jewish people were right and that Psalm 2 was actually a continuation of Psalm 1, then we've actually just solved the mystery of the anonymous beginning of Psalms to the book of Psalms. Because it's the anonymous Psalm, Psalm 1. No one knows who's right, who wrote it. But it may be that it was actually David, that which would be fitting for the book of Psalms. But that's just a little extra thrown in there for free. It is, in fact, the most uh, frequently quoted psalm in the New Testament. Six times, I believe, this psalm is quoted in the New Testament. Again, a testimony of to, to its importance. If any of you have an Anglican background uh, and have ever read the Book of Common Prayer, you'll know that Psalm 2 is appointed to be read at the first day of every month. And I actually really like that, but I think it's a very good reminder uh, that that we have in our heads as we start each month. Remember, the Hebrews, they had so many festivals for different parts of the year. They had a monthly festival, the New Moon Festival, just to sort of, as that sort of symbolizes that as you pass into a new month, to get your thoughts and your minds reassociated with God, what better way to do that than look at Psalm 2, because the themes in, in Psalm 2 are so uh, sort of sublime. One thing that I like to do with the Psalms, and I suggest that you try this as you're devotionally reading psalms because it really makes you think about it is try and sum up after you've read a psalm try and sum it up in one sentence three or four words like a short sentence because it really makes you encapsulate the main theme of that psalm so if we were doing that with psalm 2 i would do it like this i would either say god is sovereign in the sense he has the right to rule in, in that meaning of the term or you could say maybe messiah is king it's another way to summarize this psalm and thinking about the Book of Common Prayer, you read this at the beginning of every month. What great thoughts to have in your head at the beginning of every month. God is sovereign and Christ is king. And then you, you live your month. Now, what we're actually going to see in Psalm 2 is a really good interpretation that helps you understand the flow of history, helps you put history in proper perspective. And I love history, and it's probably one of the reasons why I love this psalm so much. And I believe it's a very timely study to be, to, very, you know, to be looking at this psalm right now with all the things that are going on in the world. So the psalm is really split. Some of your Bibles will have it split into four main stanzas, they call it. These are just verses, basically. We're going to go through each one as a section. And remember, as is often the case with the teaching about Jesus in the Old Testament, you get two different sorts of fulfillment. You get one fulfillment that speaks of his first coming and one in sometimes the very next verse that will speak of his second coming. You must notice the difference there and we'll highlight a few of these as we go. So let's read the first few verses again. It says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying... Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. So immediately, this psalm begins with a vision of rebellion. It sees a world in rebellion. And the specific focus of this rebellion, this uproar, is said to be against the Lord and against his anointed. Now in many ways we see this as a precursive sort of fulfilment of this psalm in the first coming of Jesus. And the book of Acts actually uses it in such a way that little portion from Acts that I read earlier, it, says, it goes on to say this. 
For truly, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, that to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So it actually says that all these, this conspiring of the nations is a fulfillment, it was partially fulfilled in the way that everyone was gathered together to crucify Christ. And I highlight this because it's a very important, we actually have the answer to a very important question here. Who was responsible for the death of Jesus? This has been a question asked by many people over the years. And this, this verse in, in the book of Acts answers it for us. Humanity was, Jews and Gentiles conspiring together. But in the end, what happened was the will of God in order that the Lord Jesus would be sacrificed for the sins of the world. Now you may know that one of the, the most frequently leveled charges against the Jewish people is the, is the charge of deicide, they call it. It's been used for sort of anti-Semitic tropes for centuries, a horrible cause of anti-Semitism. Christ killers and all these terms have been laid at the feet of the Jews. And this verse really tells you that there's no justification for such arguments. Everyone was involved in that sense. And primarily it was the will of the Lord. Yet I do believe the main thrust of this psalm is a future fulfillment. One of the things you often see with biblical prophecy is sort of multiple things that will lead up to the final fulfillment. We're going to see that here. And what I like about this is we almost see in this first verse that David is, is the author. He's kind of transported to a time in the future and he's almost given a vision and he's obviously looking at nations and kings raging in an uproar, rulers against the Lord. And after listening to their rebellion, to their cries, he just says, why? He asks the question, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? And I like the phrase vain thing, because it tells you a little bit about probably what was going on here. And I find it probably to be something like what was happening at the Tower of Babel. Do you remember that, that time when mankind was just together, united in their rejection of God, and they said, let's build a tower up to the heavens. It's basically a rejection of God at that point. This is the vain thing. A kingdom without the true king, peace without the prince of peace, a utopia, we might say today in, in modern language, which is really a secular and humanistic version of heaven, but without religious element of it. It's a vision of humanity that is really so ignorant of the nature of sin that it is in itself self-deceiving. We've seen this play out many times in history. Notice it says that kings and rulers take their stand and counsel together. This is a joint effort. Or I could say it more precisely if I was being a little provocative. I could say this is a globalist effort or a global effort to rebel against Christ. And notice it says against the Lord, all capitals, Yahweh, the holy name of God, and against his anointed. So this is against God, but more specifically, it's against his anointed one. The word anointed there, Mashiach, Messiah, Christos in the Greek. What this is basically saying is the nations are gathered together, standing against God and his Christ. This is a very, very important statement in the Bible. Now, you could phrase this another way. And that would be to say that this is antichrist. That is what the term literally means, against Christ, standing against Christ. It's basically the same statement as we have in Psalm 2. This is talking about the spirit of antichrist and ultimately pointing to the work of the antichrist in the future. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that antichrist is coming, 
speaking of the future Antichrist. It says, even now, though, many Antichrists have appeared, and from this we know it is the last hour. 1 John 4, verse 3. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is, from, is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming and now is already in the world. And I think this is a very apt description of how the world operates in many ways today. You see, look at what the text says the nations try to do in verse 3 there. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their, cor their cords from us. Now remember, this is the nations saying we want to, we want to tear the, the, the authority of Christ and his word away from the world. God and his word, Christ and his salvation must be removed from the world. That is ultimately the spirit of Antichrist, as it's called in the Bible. People taking a stand against God and his anointed. And this spirit is already here, according to the, gospel, uh, the book of John that we just read there, the epistle of John. And this is a spirit of lawlessness. It's described elsewhere in the Bible. And I believe we witness this all around today. We've witnessed it many times in history. Examples of nations coming together against Christ. Think of that great building, the UN headquarters. It's been mentioned before, but on the side of that building, you have the verse from Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4. I'll just read it for you to, so you know what I'm talking about. It says, They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's on the wall of the UN headquarters, uh, put there, nine, dedicated 1948. That's a verse from Isaiah chapter 2. What's important about that verse is it is a millennial verse. That means it's a verse referring to the work that Christ will do when he comes in his kingdom. And that's why you see how it's sort of slightly ironic that we have here a representative body of nations gathered together, almost as if putting this verse on their building is that they will be the ones that bring in this sort of peace that is spoken of. And you know, see how that is pretty much a direct fulfillment of what this psalmist is talking about. The nations are in an uproar and they take a stand against God and against his anointed. I'd say that's a good example. Another example, 1959, Darwinian centennial. Sir Julian Huxley at that event, it was a massive event at University of Chicago, he said Darwinism has removed the very concept of God from the sphere of rational discussion. And that has really been echoed through the Scientific Academy ever since. The American Humanist Society, their manifesto, they say no deity will save us, we will save ourselves. In many parts of the Western world today we rebel against every God-ordained institution and foundation of authority. We rebel against God's account of creation. We rebel against God's creation of humanity, being created in the image of God. We rebel against his ordinance of marriage. We rebel against his design for the sexes. We rebel against his presence in academia, in the courts, in politics, in almost every sphere of public life. It is no longer acceptable to invoke God and his word. This is an example of the nations raging and taking a stand. Regimes around the world today that are avowedly anti-Christian against Christ. Chief one, a prime example at the moment would be the, the CCP, the, the Chinese Communist Party. They are frequently and actively removing crosses, destroying churches, imprisoning Christians around the world today. We have Marxist revolutionaries, anarchists, committing violence and rebellion against God-ordained institutions of government, of family, of private property, all these sorts of things. You know, there's always something behind the scenes. When you see things on the news, when you see world events playing out, as Christians we have to see with spiritual eyes. And I believe Psalm 2 gives us a little sort of peers behind the veil here and helps us understand 
what is going on. We have 45 Islamic nations on the world today and many more Muslim-majority population. They live by a creed that denies the Lord's anointed, the Messiah. Their creeds deny that Jesus is the Messiah. Inscriptions all over the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, on Mount Zion, state this very fact. See, the irony of this is that we just read in Psalm 2, the Lord's response is to say, but I have installed my king on Mount Zion. But yet on Mount Zion, at the moment, we have an inscription that says, it, you know, it takes a stand against his anointed, denies that aspect of the Son of God. Now, you may have noticed recently in the last week that Turkey, and Turkey is important because it was the last place where you had a proper Islamic caliphate. That's an Islamic state in the true sense of the term, not the thing we've seen in the last recently notwithstanding, the last true Islamic sort of state, as they call it, the caliphate, was the Ottoman Empire destroyed. Obviously, at the end, they, they sided with the Nazis, and that, that was when the whole Middle East crisis really developed from the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire, because that's when all the Allied forces started carving up the Middle East, fighting over different areas of it, different parts were portioned out to be controlled by France and Britain and all different areas. Many of the nations we see there today are sort of modern inventions because that part of the world was always an empire-based system, Babylonian, Assyrian, Medo-Persian, Iranian, all these different empires, but then they got carved up into these nation-states when the last Islamic empire was uh, dissolved. Now what happened is the Hagia Sophia, you, you, anyone familiar with that church? That's a, I think a fifth or sixth century Christian church, one of the most amazing buildings and centers of Christianity in the Byzantine Empire was turned into a mosque and it's been a, a sore point politically but while well, the Ottomans were in charge obviously that's an Islamic area after that when when Ataturk and Turkey was sort of secularized it turned into museum just in the last week uh, President Erdogan has turned it back into a mosque and this is very significant now if you if you know anything about President Erdogan he's much more they call him a neo-Ottoman that means he really wants to revive the Ottoman caliphate and have that dominance over that part of the world again. And he had his director, the controversial position of the Directorate of Religious Affairs, pretty much tell you what that position is about, go up and do the first Islamic sermon and call to prayer since it was reopening as a mosque. At the same time, obviously, they covered up any Christian symbols that remained in that place. I'm just thinking, again, things that are against Christ and his anointed. And one of the most significant elements of this event completely missed by most in the Western world, is that he chose to climb into the pulpit carrying one of the ancient swords of the Ottoman leaders. It's a, uh, that is a very, very powerful and dramatic statement to the entire Middle East. Everyone who fears the power of the Ottoman Empire and Turkey, all these other rival Islamic nations, they would have noticed what he was doing very, very uh, well. Again, we, we often miss things like that, but these are just all things, again, talking of Islam, that does stand against Christ and against his word, this is a very important moment. It's happening all over the world today. As John said, the spirit of Antichrist, it's already here. Many of you may, may have seen in recent weeks, China has ordered uh, Christian villages. It's happened in, well, they, basically they, the government have been going to, to small Christian farmers and villages and telling them to renounce their faith and worship the Communist Party. But then they've been doing it like, if you don't, we're going to cut you off your welfare. And so it's sort of related to food and survival. Just read you a small clip. 
uh, from an article. It says, Chinese authorities visited Christian homes in Linfen in the northern province of Shanghai. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. In April, and told residents who were on welfare benefits to take down all their crosses, replace anything that has to do with Jesus or the Bible, and put up portraits of Chairman Mao and President Jinping, according to the religious freedom uh, writer Bitter Winter. Any Christians who refused to comply with their demand had their wealthy welfare subsidies annulled. One local pastor reported all impoverished households in the town were told to display Mao Zedong images. The government is trying to eliminate our belief and wants to become God instead of Jesus. Exactly the same sort of thing being played out in the world today. The kings of the earth take a stand against God and his anointed. Now notice how all of these things, uh, as John said, are the spirit of Antichrist manifesting right now, but I do believe they are ultimately pointing to a final eschatological, that means an end times, fulfillment. All over the Bible, we speak of a time when nations will gather together against God. Do you remember in Daniel chapter 7, those great prophecies of the four empires, the fourth beast it's called? Out of that beast will come ten horns, and from those ten horns one will arise who will speak blasphemous things against the Most High, the Antichrist. He will be the, the man of lawlessness himself. Let me read to you Second Thessalonians chapter 2. It says, when the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Elsewhere we learn that this man will also demand that people worship his image. You see, just think about what I just read to you from China. Uh, see, we, we sometimes think that maybe people who are interested in end times prophecy it's an area that we, we need to neglect because it can get a little crazy and sounds weird and people don't like it and they abuse it in many ways, that's sure. But we've pretty much just mapped out what's happening with a, a ruler who sets himself up against God today and is telling people to renounce their faith, worship an image, or else you're not going to be able to buy or sell or eat. It's pretty much exactly how the Bible describes the Antichrist. So these things are ready to happen in many, many ways. And that's for us, we look for the blessed hope, but we need to be uh, aware and understand the times of what is going on. What is the ultimate aim of the beast, as it's talked about, this man of lawlessness? I believe we find this in Revelation 19.19. 19. It says, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth. Notice the expression there. It's very, the kings of the earth. It's very, very similar to what we just read in Psalm 2. The kings of the earth take their stand. And now we're seeing at the end of the Bible, talking about the ultimate man of lawlessness the ultimate person who stands against god that he's actually called the antichrist and it says the kings of the earth and their armies so the nations with them assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army so you actually have them this imagery here of them making war against the anointed one against christ this is the ultimate fulfillment of what we are reading in psalm chapter 2 so let's go back and read the next few verses now in psalm chapter 2 he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. This is really a sort of a very dramatic way, uh, so common in the Psalms, to emphasize the Lord's transcendence over the plans of man. You see, when men gather all their forces to dethrone God, God does not for one second fear. Nothing takes him by surprise. And we actually have the statement here, it provokes him to almost derisive laughter. 
Now, many of us, in the in sort of sensitive souls that we are, we maybe don't like to think of God as laughing at humanity in that sense. But, again, this is the book of Psalms. This is a Middle Eastern book in that sense. These things are specifically designed to evoke emotion, this sort of language. And I believe this is laughter. It's very pointed. The laughter is directed against the sheer delusion that pride and sin has created that people could even think that the creature could dethrone the creator in the fact that they're willing to gather their armies and go to war against him. This is the pride. This is what Satan, this was the whole reason for this, what we've seen on play in the world. Uh, but then we have in verse 5, then he will speak to them in his anger. See, the Lord now speaks. He's not worried by this. He speaks. And it's a terrifying thing in some respects. When the God, I'd imagine if you're, you've taken your stand against God, and then he suddenly speaks from his throne. Revelation 6 gives us a glimpse of this in how it'll play out in the future. And again, notice the phrase, the kings, then the kings of the earth, this is uh, Revelation 6 verse 15, then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains and they said to the mountains of the rocks, fall on us, hide from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? He speaks in his anger. It's a terrifying thing if you've taken up a stand against God. What is the response of the Lord to this? He simply says, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Quite simply, it is a proclamation that Christ is king. And thus Christ is the ultimate answer to the chaos we see around us. And I don't mean that as a glib Christian cliche, sort of like a miracle motif or a miracle cure. But in the context of what we're reading here, he is the cure in the sense that first, he was the one who died to make a way for people to be forgiven. So it doesn't matter if you have previously taken a stand against him. Grace is extended to you. Forgiveness is offered to you, bought by the blood of Christ. But then in the second sense, he is the one who will judge and rule ultimately. And because of these two things, Christ can rightly be called the king of kings. And interestingly, both of these things took place on Mount Zion. That's why it says, I've installed my king on Mount Zion. Obviously that is where the sacrifice was made, but it is also where he will one day come back and this judging and these events will take place. When he comes to judge those nations that are assembled together against him for war, then he will begin his messianic rule and that will be on Mount Zion. Zechariah 14.4 In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west, and on and on the verse goes. It goes on a little later. It says, In that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. And then verse 9, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. What that's basically saying there, the prophet Zechariah, remember I said the Psalms are explaining basically the message of the prophets in, in poetic language. It's basically saying the Lord will be one, the only king, and his name will be the only one. There will be no one left in that sense to take a stand against God. The Antichrist will be defeated. The armies of the nations will be put in their place at this time. This is why I summarize this psalm as God is sovereign, Messiah is king. They are the two elements of this psalm. And they are two things that we can have in our minds always as we worship the Lord. Let me read to you Joel chapter 3. We see this theme again. It says, the Lord roars from Zion. That evokes to me the same language that we read in Psalm 2, that he speaks out of his anger 
and his hatred of sin. He roars from Zion, utters his voice in Jerusalem, the heavens and the earth tremble. But then it says the Lord is a refuge for his people, a stronghold to the sons of Israel. That's Joel chapter 3, verse 16. And then let me read to you just one more. Isaiah chapter 2, very famous verse about the future of Zion. It says it will come about in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord. And again, notice this phrase that you see, the mountain of the house of the Lord, because again, we just read it in Psalm chapter 2. I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. It's the same sort of theme that we have there. It says this mountain will be the house of the Lord, will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Notice the, the, the difference here. Rather than all the nations streaming against Messiah, at this time all the nations will be streaming to Mount Zion in obedience, adoration and worship to him. This is the difference that Christ makes when you place him into the situation. It's not a UN, it's not a utopia, it's not a dystopian future. It's a future that has a real king who is worthy and people will flock to see this king. They will say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths from the law, for the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between nations, render decisions for many people. They will hammer their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks, and nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. That end part I just read is what I read on the side of the UN building. You see the difference when it's read in context with the entire passage there and the difference is that Christ is there at the centre and he is the one that can make that happen. That's not to say we shouldn't do all we can to work and be peacemakers, that is also a command of Christ. Um, and I'm not actually just saying that everything the UN does is bad in that sense. What I'm just emphasising is that it's an attempt that does, in many ways, remove Christ. You see... When Christ is ruling, it will be a day when righteousness will cover the earth, justice will prevail, and the glory of the Lord will shine upon the earth. Let's read the next uh, three verses in Psalm 2. Verse 7 says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. And he said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall shatter them like earthenware. And now, this is kind of an amazing twist in the psalm here, we have the voice of the Son of God, almost, telling us the decree of the Father. And as this is the biblical pattern, the Son declares the Father. Remember what it says in John 1.18? No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him, or he has explained him, it says in my Bible there. The Son reveals the Father. We see this again in Psalm 2 here. Now, remember, I just read from John chapter 1. The theme of John chapter 1 is Christ revealed as the Word, as the Word of God. When we hear him, we hear the Father, because him and the Father are one. This is why we listen. You know, today he has spoken to us through his Son in that sense. You are my son, today I have begotten you, it says in Psalm 2. This is basically saying that all those verses I just read to you from the prophets of the Old Testament that speak of the Lord ruling from Zion, the Lord, again, all caps, holy name of God, Yahweh, the Lord ruling in Zion, is now identified here specifically as the Son. And that is very, very significant. This is why this is the chief of all messianic psalms in many ways, because it's at the beginning of the Psalter and it's just such an amazing declaration that is the son, the anointed, the Messiah, who is ruling, who is also elsewhere described 
as the Lord. But notice it uses that little phrase, begotten, here. We see that a lot in the New Testament, don't we? I just read it to you from John 1. What does this mean in the Hebrew? It really means to bear, to bring forth would be a good translation. Now, let's be specific. What is this referring to? This is, again, where we need to think about the difference of Christ in this situation. What was the event that proved Jesus was the true Messiah, the Son of God? This is New Testament theology that we have here. It was one specific event, and it's the resurrection. In Acts chapter 13, verses 32 and 33, let's read this together. The writer uses Psalm 2 in this exact context. Let's read it. It says, verse 32, And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus. So it's talking about the resurrection of Christ. And then it says, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Referring specifically here to the resurrection of the Son of God. Remember Romans 1.4, it says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God by power through the resurrection of the dead. And we see it also quoted in Hebrews 1. I won't read it for you, but it's the same context, a passage dealing with the supremacy of Christ, quoting Psalm chapter 2 in that context. Jesus conquered death with the resurrection, and thus he defeated all enemies with the resurrection. Only the one who could do this could rightly reign as king from Zion for eternity. You see how all of these things are connected and in many ways anticipate and fulfill the resurrection of the Son of God. Because the eternal King ruling from Zion of which the nations will gather to flock, this is Jesus, the eternal King. The resurrection is key. And the passage in Acts, it actually goes on and it speaks of him having and receiving the holy and sure blessings of the promises that were given to David. Now remember, we've, we've just gone through all of the, the 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, and all those historical books. We looked at the covenant that was made with David. These promises were a promise of descendants who would have an eternal throne, kingdom, and a house. All of those three things fulfilled by the eternal descendant in the eternal city with the eternal dynasty on the eternal throne. Resurrection makes all that possible. This is why the resurrection is key New Testament theology. We often think of the resurrection as being key to our salvation in that very individualistic sense of how we defeat death and get to heaven. Nothing wrong with that beautiful truth. But in a bigger sense, it's also the key of the resurrection of how we see the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies progressively revealed and played out, centered in Jerusalem in the future at this time. Only the immortal king could do that. This is the resurrection. And this is why I believe it shows you that this psalm is talking about more than just King David in, in the sense of, of the ancient king of Israel. Let's, let's, let's go verse 10. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Sorry, we're back in Psalm 2 now. If that's uh, This is verse 8 again, sorry. Ask for me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of your possession. This basically means that in the coming kingdom, all the nations of the entire earth will come under the authority of the Son, of the Mashiach, of the Anointed One. Remember in Revelation 11, it says, this is you know, the end times, it says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Again, very similar word to Psalm 2. 
it says the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. The rulers have taken a stand against the Lord and his Christ. And now it's saying that the kingdom of the world is being transferred to the kingdom of Christ and he will reign forever and ever because he's the eternally resurrected king. Daniel saw this too. Again, it's explaining all the prophets for you here. We, it's just, the Bible's just so beautiful. We get all these promises in the prophets. We get them put in this remarkable way in the Psalms and we get to see them fulfilled and played out through the New Testament in the person of Christ and also through the church in many ways that we're going to look at a little bit. Daniel chapter 11. Remember, he sees this vision of the Son of Man ruling the nations. I'll read to you just a, a couple of verses. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Again, just what we've read in Psalm 2, that he'll be given the nations as, in, as inheritance. And then let's look at the last verse of that little section. It says, You shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall shatter them like earthenware. Now again, we sometimes wince when we hear things about rods and judgment. There's no need to. It's just the, lang it's just the language of the, Bi the Bible in this sense. Very Middle Eastern, meant to evoke imagery in your mind, strong feelings. That's what the Psalms do. And that's not to mean it's not talking about real things. It is. The rod here, I believe, is really symbolic or being used to, as a symbol to judge and maintain order. It is ultimately a symbol of authority. This is all these verses we've just read. Authority will be given, dominion will be given to the king. And it's really ultimately his word. Let me read to you Isaiah chapter 4. But with righteousness he will judge the poor, decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he'll slay the wicked. And again, ultimately, Revelation, Psalm 2 and Revelation are uh, so intimately linked. We see it in Revelation 19. Uh, the armies which were in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on a white horse. Remember this dramatic scene, the second coming of Christ. It says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that he may strike down the nations. And then it says, look, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Direct quote from Psalm 2. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and his thighs a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Hopefully with that background now you can see why king of kings and lord of lords because of everything that he's accomplished he's the only resurrected king it's his right his dominion his authority and no one else's well actually i say that there is someone else that has authority in this area that authority can also be delegated and this is one of the remarkable things of christianity that god has delegated that authority in some sense to us revelation chapter 2 verse 26 and 27 he who overcomes and this is a promise to the overcomer, to the church in the, in the first two chapters. He who overcomes and who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, again, quoting Psalm 2 in that sense, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. That's Revelation 2, verses 26 and 27. As I have received authority from my Father. So part of that authority God actually gifts as a promise to those who are his body, basically. We share in this inheritance on earth. That's just one of the amazing blessings that we have of being united with the Son. Let's read the last, last few verses and we'll, we'll close out. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning 
O judges of the earth, worship the Lord with reverence, rejoice with trembling, do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So in this sort of final uh, section now of this amazing psalm, we see an exhortation, a warning, and an invitation. And this is often the theme that we have in the Bible, these sort of three things coupled together, an exhortation, a warning, and an invitation. In many ways, this is how the Spirit's work is described, to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. So after we've had this broad sweep of prophetic history, this sort of view behind the veil of how the world works and the nations rage against the Lord, we get this final exhortation. You see, Christ is rightly enthroned as the king who will rule. The psalm has explained this to us. But now the writer urges these kings and judges to show better discernment, to understand more. The same group that is plotting against him. And I believe this is, it gives us a word for us too. How should the church exercise discernment when we interpret the flow of history and what is going on through the world? A lot of the time we make the mistake of listening to what the earthly rulers say. And I'm not advocating necessarily disobedience against that. I'm just saying that many times the way people interpret history is through their worldview. And we've just seen that many of kings, rulers, nations, they don't put Christ in the equation, which changes everything with our worldview. As a church, we must be discerning and have Christ at the center of our worldview, even as we interpret every other part and every other aspect of life from your job to the academy, to the media, everything. We must have Christ at the center of it. Now, notice the coupling of the words here. Worship, rejoice, and reverence, and trembling. Sort of the parallelism, again, the beauty of the the eloquence of the psalmist here. Worship and rejoice are, are used there interchangeably, and reverence and trembling. And these are things that are good. These are used in a, in a positive sense many times in the Bible. We're told to tremble at his world. We're told to rejoice and worship with reverence and with awe. We understand these terms. But we've also seen that for those who are standing against God, this would be a terrible, you know, the day of his wrath is coming and it is something to fear. Hebrews 12, verse 28. Since we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude. By which, we, by which we may offer to God an acceptable servant service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. God is a consuming fire. In Christ, we, we don't need to worry about the consuming fire, and we are thankful that we are in him, that he loves us, that he's made a way to forgive us, but he is still that consuming fire in many ways, because that is his nature, it's part of his holiness, and we've seen here in the book of Revelation, sin will be consumed by that holiness. It says, do homage to the sun. Some, most of you might, it may say kiss the sun in, in a lot of your translations there. It's the same sort of concept. Do homage is probably a bit more literal. What it's basically meaning is submit yourself to the Lord. So in this exhortation, he's saying to these rulers who are standing against Christ, have a better understanding of what's going on. Submit yourself to the Lord or else you may find yourself in the same company of those who are plotting against him and his wrath is a very serious issue. You remember in Philippians chapter 2, that amazing passage about Christ's sort of uh, journey down from heaven. It says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But then it says, for this reason also, God highly exalted him 
resurrection and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father that is the future that awaits every man you will be one of those ones who bows the knee at some point the proclamation is here that he wants it to be now he wants it to be voluntarily and he wants you to understand the uh, the message really of grace it says his wrath may soon be kindled now that's a big statement his wrath may soon be kindled if you if you've read anything about the wrath of god it is a consuming fire we just did what this is saying is that this present day of grace will one day be exchanged for the day of wrath this is the very culmination of history when people who take a stand against god as psalm 2 indicates when this is all dealt with revelation 6:16 the kings of the earth cry out, fool in us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, who is able to stand? Only those who have been given the robes by Christ. He is begging them really here to get right with God. I see this almost like a Pauline uh, exhortation, you know, I beg you be reconciled to God. You know, he's, he's almost that, in a sort of the Old Testament sense, making that same appeal here you've chosen the wrong side god is still waiting and still willing to extend grace to you through this anointed one through this messiah change your ways and then it ends with this final invitation how blessed are all who take refuge in him and what a beautiful invitation really at the end of all this history all this great theology that we've seen this theology that magnifies the position character nature of our lord jesus christ there's an invitation to take refuge in him not just believe in him, not just obey him, take refuge in him. That speaks much more intimately than just accepting someone who's more powerful than you. That's never the image we have of God in that sense. But notice this is why they link it back to Psalm 1. You studied last week, didn't you? Blessed is the man that does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, the first verse of, of um, the first part of Psalm 1, i.e., if you're not you know, the counsel of the wicked is probably the same group of people that are gathered together and taking their stand against God and is anointed. And then in Psalm 1, again, at the end, it says, but, bless, uh, but blessed are those whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on and on. That's pretty much the same way of saying those who have taken refuge in him. And it's that link there, which is why a lot of the rabbis almost saw Psalm 1 and 2 as being the same psalm as in they were linked by these two blessed be passages at the end and in between you've just got this beautiful glorious scope of salvation history and the exaltation of christ and i really want to just leave it there with you with christ exalted in our thoughts so let's just close in prayer dear heavenly father we do thank you just so much lord for your word for the truth it contains for the wonders that it has in it We pray, Lord, that these things would impact our hearts and our minds, that we would meditate on them, they would impact our lives and the way we live. Thank you for Psalm 2 and I thank you for the whole Psalter, Lord, and would you just bless our time in it as we go through. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.